Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Hello everyone, welcome back. I am very excited. This is the first double episode week. So I am really excited about this because I figured out a way to do it. Um, As I mentioned, I was trying to figure out a way to juggle kind of getting in more of the cases that people have contacted me about. And this one that I have today, honestly, there's just very little information. It's a 40-year-old murder, and so that makes the information kind of harder to get because back then we didn't have the internet. So with that, I am able to do a smaller episode with basically less research. So that's what I think I'm going to end up doing is maybe every week we're going to have the full-length episode, and then we're going to have a shorter episode. That way we can cover all of the, you know, in a, in a shorter period of time, I can cover more of the cases. And I mean, heck, it's only been like yesterday I posted the case on um, Eric Franks, and I've already gotten five more requests for other cases. So please, like I said before, keep sending them in. I am going to get to them all. And I'm loving the opportunity to do this for you. I, I have to tell you this, like I've said before, it's not about me. It's about the victims and their and their loved ones. But this is truly just it warms my heart to be able to do this for you. And you know, anything that I can do to bring awareness to your loved one's story, that that is the most important thing. And it's not just about their murders or them being missing. It's about who they were as a person. And that to me is almost as much as important as, as you know, what happened to them, you know, and I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this for you guys and and really try to help move these cases forward. So, be, and I know I mentioned this a few weeks ago too, that I really wanted to take some of our time together to touch on some causes. And I kind of wanted to focus on the ones for that particular month. So because this is a shorter case, um to put that in perspective, the case that I did yesterday for Eric Franks was about 15 pages long. This one for today is three. So it's seriously a much smaller case just because of the amount of information. So because of that, I wanted to touch on one of, I I hate to say causes, but I mean, technically it is. So one of the causes for the month, for the month of April, which is Autism Acceptance Month. And this is really special to me because I think it's been about 14 years now. Um, My best friend Kim and I and my son Adam, we moved into a house. 
and next door was this incredible family that to this day, I literally love them like family. They are the most amazing, amazing people. And within that family is a young man who I can say young man now because he is a a freshman in high school. And I watched him grow since he was, I believe, four years old into the most incredible person you will ever meet. He has literally blown past every obstacle in his life. And he truly, to me, he defines autism. When I think, when I I've had a couple of, and the, the, the reason I say that is because um, I've had a couple friends who, ex- co-workers, acquaintances, um, they've had uh, their children be diagnosed within the last year. And I would actually tell them the story of this young man because he is hope. He is faith. Because when people have young children who are newly diagnosed with autism, look at their child and wonder if they're ever going to be able to leave a quote un- lead a quote-unquote normal life or if they're going to be you know nonverbal or you know what kind of obstacles are they going to have? They they can I mean yes, there there are some extreme cases. I completely understand that. But this mother that I'm talking about, she put it, she, her and her entire family, her husband, amazing people, but they they just did the research and they put so much effort into their child and he has just surpassed everything. I mean, this child is like an, an archery champion and he is smart as a whip. I mean, like tremendously smart and... I, I just can't say enough about him. I, I just love him dearly. But the reason I bring that up is because every child, especially children on the spectrum, are so completely different. And um, before we go forward, let me just explain, because I'm sure most of you out there do know already, but I want to explain what autism is. And autism is a developmental disability that affects the way people experience the world. It could be things as in processing their senses, their thinking, their physical movement and communicating, um, socializing, going, you know, just living their daily lives. There's a lot of factors that go in to being on the spectrum. Okay, it could be, I remember when this young man was, was, very young and him and his two sisters and my son were playing in the backyard and he came in the house and he asked for a glass of milk and he said he was tired and wanted to go lay down. He went and lay down and his parents checked on him later and he had fallen off of the play structure in the backyard and broke his arm. You would not have known that. Because the way he processes the pain is not like 
anything else. It's, he processes it completely differently. He doesn't feel things the way maybe somebody else would. And every single child is different. Every single child is going to experience things completely differently. So, according to um, the director of advocacy at the Autistic Self Advocacy Network, Zoe Gross, she says that it, it literally affects everything about the way they interact and perceive the world. Okay, one in 36 children have autism spectrum disorder. And this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's been about a decade now that uh, the Autism Society of America shifted their terminology. It used to be considered autism awareness. But they moved to autism acceptance. Because... And this was a very intentional choice because you're moving forward. You know, you've, you've accepted it and now you're going to adjust. Autism is not something to be afraid of. Okay. It doesn't need a stigma. It is something to, in my, in my view, it's something to almost celebrate, because these these children and these adults, some people are not diagnosed until they're in their adulthood, okay? And um, these people, they should be celebrated, okay? And that, to me, is just so important. And I remember when my son was in middle school, and the class, one of the class that he was in, they had to design um, posters, and these posters were going to be put up around the school. And he was actually in a anti-bullying task force within his school because he had been bullied quite a bit, and he loved my my friend's son beyond measure. And he had seen him be bullied in elementary school. He wanted to make sure that this stops. So my son designed this poster. And it was it actually, I believe, hung in the school for two years and was in their school newsletter. And he, it was a beautifully designed poster. And it said, a person is not just the diagnosis on the chart. Okay, so just because somebody is has been diagnosed with autism or ADHD or whatever, that does not define them. Okay, you can take that diagnosis and you can turn it into a jail cell. Or you can take that diagnosis and turn it into your wings and fly higher than you can ever imagine. Like I said, this young man that we were talking about, mind-blowing how amazing he is. I used to call him my little spider monkey because when he was probably about five, I walked into his house and I saw this sweet boy 
scaling the walls in the hallway of their home, like one foot on each side in his hands, and he was all the way at the ceiling. Okay, he he thought out how to get to the ceiling and figured it out on his own. I mean, this is not something that, a, that an average five-year-old could do. But he took his incredibly, and you know, this amaz- amazing brain and figured out, a, he saw a problem and figured out a solution. He took his wings and flew. And I honestly cannot wait to see how hard he flies, how high he flies in the future. So who knows, maybe one day he'll hear this. And uh, Mr. E, know that you are loved and you're amazing. So with that, I'm going to jump right into today's case. So as I mentioned before, there is not a lot of information on today's case, which is one of the reasons it's unsolved. But um, it happened 40 years ago. This year, actually, um, it happened in January of 1983. And here we are in April of 2003. So this happened just over 40 years ago. And uh, it's... It is very rough. I'm going to, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be giving any gruesome details, but I will tell you that the murder was extremely, extremely rough. So if you want to sign off now, I completely understand. And I, I really need to like, maybe like pre-record a, uh, um, like a disclaimer for these types of episodes. I know like the missing people episodes, there's not a whole lot of gruesomeness because we don't know where the person is, but the, the murder episodes can get pretty bad, so. But that does not mean that they shouldn't be told because they should. I just try to make sure that I keep things as um, non-graphic as possible, so. All right, so today we are going to discuss the murder of Jeanette Roberson. Today's case takes place in 1983 in the tiny town of Reed City, Michigan. Reed City sits just outside of the Huron-Manistee National Forest. If, again, we're going to go to our hand, our trusty Michigan mitten, and we're going to be looking approximately at the, the knuckle, the second knuckle down on your ring finger. That's the approximate location of Reed City. Okay, so that kind of gives you an idea of where it's at in the state. It's kind of nice to be able to carry a map in your in your pocket, right? <laughs> so according to the 1990 census, the population of Reed City was only 2,379 people. The city itself is only 2.11 square miles. So it's a very, very small town. And if you if you worked... In downtown Reed City, everybody knew you. It was one of those kind of things. There was a small hospital there, um, schools, but it it was definitely a small town. Um, Downtown Reed City is your normal quintessential small town. In 1983, the Main Street held several stores and restaurants, one of which was a Gamble's. 
Now, um, I've never personally been to a Gambles. When I when I looked it up, uh, I found that Gambles is like a small department store that sold everything from hardware to toys to auto parts to pets and supplies. They literally sold pets. There were animals in this department store, which I thought was kind of cool. So in this small store, the pet department was actually in the basement. And from what I read is the building, the people that own the Gambles and in that particular building bought the building next door. And they connected, they basically opened it up to expand. So in the basement, they also opened up the space so that they put a doorway in to connect it to the next basement. So part of the basement was pretty like dark and I don't want to say scary, but some people felt it was scary apparently. So... The basement, like I said, is where the pet department was. And this is where the body of 27-year-old Jeanette Roberson would be found brutally murdered. Jeanette Gail Fisher was born October 25th, 1955 in Detroit, Michigan. As an adult, Actually, no, I'm sorry. She was not an adult. She actually married her husband, Elvin Roberson, when she was 16. So she was extremely young. And they would go on to have two children. In the beginning of the 1980s, Elvin and Jeanette moved with their children to the small town of Reed City. This small town was being known, was known for being a safe and friendly place to raise a family. Jeanette got a job at the Gambles department store in the pet department because she actually, she loved animals. It was not like a full-time job. It was a part-time job. Her, her children, I believe, were like eight and nine at the time. So this was like the perfect thing for her to do while they were in school. And she loved animals and they could really use the extra money. So it was really perfect for her. A woman named Carrie who was friends with Jeanette's daughter remembers a moment from her childhood. And she actually told this to NBC news. And I, I really thought it was a sweet thing that I wanted to point out. The children had found a baby bird that had fallen from its nest. Uh, Jeanette took the bird, cared for it and raised it until it was old enough to be on its own. They took it to a hatchery and released it. Carrie remembers the bird waiting for quite some time before flying off because it didn't want to leave Jeanette. That caring nature was who she was with people and animals alike. She was just, she was known as a very sweet, sweet girl. She... Honestly, it was just, I've seen a couple pictures of her. And like I said, there's not a whole lot on her um, from 1983. There, there's a couple pictures I found and I, I will post them on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page. But oh my goodness, what a gorgeous woman. So tiny. She, she looked like a child herself. Um, definitely not a 27-year-old woman. I would think she was easily a teenager. Um, just beautiful 
uh, blonde hair, just a gorgeous face, just this absolutely natural, natural, beautiful girl. And um, some people felt like that could have potentially led to her murder because there were a lot of people that showed interest in her because she was so lovely. On Wednesday, January 19th, 1983, Janelle went to Gamble's for her shift. She went into the basement. As I mentioned, that's where the pets department was. And sometime between 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., someone came into the basement and brutally murdered Jeanette Roberson. I do have to tell you that she was sexually assaulted. And the beating that her body took was so brutal that the autopsy showed that she was beaten with multiple blunt force objects. The police believed that the items used in the attack were those of opportunity from the basement itself, which led them to believe that this was an act of rage and not a planned attack. Now, her sister, who I've seen a few interviews that she's given, um, I've also read some things that they weren't exactly close at the time of, of Jeanette's death. So I didn't want to really include a whole lot um, about her sister because I just could not really prove anything. But her sister did say at one time that she believed that what could have possibly happened is that somebody showed advances towards Jeanette and Jeanette was a Jehovah's Witness and she was um, very devout to her husband and to her family. So she would have turned away any advances and her sister kind of thought that maybe she just turned away the wrong person. Um, the autopsy showed that the cause of death was a blow to the head from a heavy object. During the time window of her death, um, there were employees and customers in the store. They had been walking around on the main level, but nobody claimed to hear anything. Something that I found really interesting was that there was an employee working the cash register at the front of the store and also one working a register near the basement stairs. Um, the owner actually was offloading a truck in the back of the store. So it kind of seemed to me like most of the entrances and the exits were pretty much being covered. So where did this person come from and where did he go? Part of me wonders... If I did, I did read one thing that said that around 12 o'clock, she actually left for her, like her lunch break and went and picked up her, her children from school and took them to a babysitter. She wasn't gone very long. Like I said, it was a very small town, so everything was very close. But even if she got right back, I mean, I, I guess perhaps somebody could have been hiding in the basement. Like I said, it was dark and it does sound like there were a lot of places to possibly hide however where did the person go that to me is probably the biggest mystery about this case is where did they go because from what I like I said I don't want to get into a lot of the details of the gruesomeness of her attack 
But from what I've read, there was a very large amount of blood, like a considerable amount of blood. How do you not get that blood on you? And if you have it on you, how do you get up the basement stairs through a store without tracking it somewhere, especially when there are people around? To me, that does not make any sense. So I just want to throw that out there because it it really kind of baffled me. I probably read every article on this multiple times just trying to see if I could figure out how that worked, but it really made very little sense to me. So in 1983, Reed City was home to three different law enforcement offices. You had the Reed City Police, the Osella County, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but the County Sheriff, and the Michigan State Police. And reports show that all three agencies were actually active in trying to solve this case, which makes it even crazier All three of them were involved from the beginning, and still nothing. Like, not at all. Very strange to me. Now, I will say this. Murder was definitely not something that the police in that area were used to. The last murder in Reed City had happened eight years prior. Eight years. I mean, come on. That's insane. So that... Like, something of this nature was not something that they were used to. In fact, that I read a couple of things that said that when the EMTs arrived to the scene, one of the EMTs stepped in the blood, and another one broke down crying because she couldn't believe what was in front of her. It just wasn't something that they were used to. And then when they, I don't know if it was the coroner or who they had come to declare her dead at the scene, he stepped in the blood. So this was like, I don't want to call these screw ups by any sense of the word because this was not something that any of them had ever dealt with before. I'm, I'm guessing that the EMTs that were on on the scene probably weren't even EMTs eight years prior. You know what I'm saying? So I completely get that. Stuff happens. You know, mistakes can be made. I can't fault them for that because this is completely out of the ordinary. So they immediately began searching for Jeanette's killer. And there was a man who had visited the store the day before, and the police actually heard that he was heading out of town the day of Jeanette's murder. They, he was riding a bus, and they actually stopped the bus about 12 miles away from Reed City um, and got him off of the bus. They questioned him, and he was later released and never charged. They deemed that he had nothing to do with the murder. Now, as you know, who is the first suspect anytime anyone is killed? The spouse, okay? Jeanette's husband, Elvin, was also looked at as a possible subject. I'm sorry, suspect. There were rumors that he had been having an affair and that the couple had been discussing a divorce. But both he and said woman were ruled out. Um, 
several weeks after the murder, the police released three sketches of a person of interest that they wanted to talk to, but this person was never located. Almost $7,000 was raised as a reward. And in 1983, that was huge. That's an equivalent to about $20,000 today in 2023. And I've actually seen like quite a few murders lately around here that they're only generating $1,000, which really honestly, I think is kind of nothing. I know, I think Crime Stoppers does like a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. It's definitely not much, but um, so yeah, seven thousand dollars, especially in a small town like Reed City, was just huge. Um, they did get some tips, but none of the tips led them anywhere really. That none of them had were good. I mean, obviously, it's 40 years and it's still unsolved, but I don't even think they really got anything close off the tips. So within a few months of Jeanette's murder, Alvin and the children would move to Georgia. I believe that's where um, Alvin's family was. He didn't have anybody in Reed City. When they originally moved there, they moved there because Jeanette's mom lived there. And I think they just thought it would be good with the children and everything. But he decided to take the kids and move away. Um, I did read some reports that the kids were kind of being taunted in school about what happened to their mom, and I'm sure that was really hard on them. Um, in fact, I have, even here we are 40 years later, I have found very little about the children's life after. I mean, they would be, and, you know, they're basically my age at this point, and I haven't found like social media presence or anything. So I'm sure it's been a very, very difficult time for them. Um, when Alvin uh, moved with the kids to Georgia, he actually ended up remarrying. Um, his new wife actually was the woman he was rumored to have had an affair with. So I'm going to say that that rumor was true. <laughs> um, just, just saying. Um, then uh, we're going to fast forward to 2008. Um, Jeanette's niece, she had heard about her aunt passing. I believe she was not born until after um, Jeanette passed away. But her niece decided to kind of start looking into her case. She didn't really know a lot of details. Nobody really wanted to talk about it because it was so gruesome. And she finally sat down, I believe, with her grandmother and said, look, I need to know what happened. You know, she felt compelled to try to help find this person. And one of the reasons she felt compelled is because she herself was living in Reed City and had children. And she felt a little unnerved about the fact that, hey, a killer could potentially still be in this area. Can't blame her at all. I'd want to find out what happened, too. So she kind of took it on herself to, like, get things going. Her extended family um, created a Facebook page. And they also decided to set up a memorial walk in her memory in hopes of generating new tips. And I, I read one article that said that she was actually told by the police, 
don't stop this. Keep doing this because every time they do a walk, more tips come in. Obviously, none of them have generated any um, any leads, but it's getting people talking and that's what's important. And again, that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is that the importance of just bringing these cases to light. This is a 40-year-old case. Until somebody messaged me last week on Facebook to tell me about this person, I had never heard of this before. Okay, that's sad. This was a gruesome, horrific attack. And the name Jeanette Roberson was never in my in my vocabulary. And that is sad. I want to say her name. I want to give her that voice. She was 27 years old. So young with two beautiful children. And come on. Actually, Jeanette's sister told NBC News, someone out there knows something and they need to finally come forward. How true is that? Here in 2023, as I said, it's been 40 years since Jeanette was murdered and they're no closer to finding the person responsible. And that is honestly a sad, sad fact. So again, if you have any tips whatsoever, if you know anything, no matter how small, please contact the Michigan State Police. Or if you want to remain anonymous, you can contact me at the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page and I will pass that information along to the police and keep your name out of it. Um, trust me, they have um, become very familiar with me. <laughs> I have um, been, I've given them any tips that have come in on any cases, which I believe since this, this is going to be, I believe episode 14, 14 or 15. And um, I have sent them 10 emails about different cases. So, Every single time the person reporting the tip has asked to remain anonymous and I have completely respected that wish. And luckily the the police have been um, agreeable to that. So anyway, uh, here we go. This is the end of today's case. I will see you guys next week. I'm again, we'll try to have two for you because... No matter how small of uh, how small the amount of evidence and information we have, their story still needs to be told. So with that, I wish you a wonderful weekend. Um, Sunday is Easter. Um, I hope you all have a wonderful time with your family. And I, um, yeah, sorry. I Holidays still get me. We used to always have um, Easter dinner with my parents, and I will be having Easter dinner with my dogs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I hope you all enjoy your time with your family because cherish it. It's very special. We never know what tomorrow will bring. So, I will see you all next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>